0: Hello, everyone. I have Matthew Cortman back for part two of our discussion, and we are answering some steamy questions addressing bisexuality and homosexuality in the Bible as we explore the relationship between David and Jonathan and reinvestigating the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm your host today, Kendra Arsnow, and this podcast sponsors our Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. Imago gay is a declaration of dignity, a statement that we are all made Imago Day, or made in the image of God. If you are enjoying content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. I can't wait to continue this conversation with YouTube personality and adjunct professor at La Sierra University, Matthew Cortman. If you'd like to follow him, please check out his YouTube channel, Matthew Cortman. Well, welcome back, everyone. Today we have an excellent episode, kind of a part two of the Matthew Cortman episode, where we're getting into some more theological areas of study. We're going to talk about was David bisexual? Uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the implications of the text that we see in Sodom and Gomorrah and Leviticus 18. So today is some heavy hitters, but I brought in spiritual care provider Roxanne to kind of bring us through a digestion of some of this content before we get started. So thanks so much for being here.
1: I'm excited to be here per use.
0: This has been kind of a, a debate among scholars and people who read the text And there's a suggestion that, oh, you know, David has this thing that he said, it was about Jonathan, that, you know, your love to me has been surpassing that of women. And there are some times that people say, well, you know, this might be evidence of David's bisexuality. What are some of your immediate reactions to that? Hmm.
1: I will say, for me, that thought is not borrowed. I have read the text and thought to myself, huh, what does that mean? Does that mean his connection to another man was more intense, was more meaningful. I mean, what's more intimate than your connection to your spouse? But then you look at context, and and then everybody that was around me, there was no room for that interpretation. So I felt like the crazy one for thinking it. But then I read it, and I think, you know, feels harder to come to a different conclusion than than the most obvious one.
0: Right, right. So (laughs) it's a controversial take and I'm going to let you listen to this clip from Matthew and then I want to get your take on it. Okay. We ended last conversation with looking at the fact that, you know, throughout time and throughout history, there has been this increasing allowance for divorce and because it's become a majority voice in the church, uh, that that's something that churches and parishioners are saying, hey, it's cool, but not homosexuality because it's still a minority voice. Um, And so that's kind of where we ended our conversation. And I thought that's a perfect place to close.
2: Like whether or not theologically, at least from an administrative standpoint, the way in which people would handle church policies seems to be directly related to how much uh, pressure or blowback they would expect from implementing them.
0: Exactly, which is very telling of itself. It's not a very a, clearly not a very principled stance, as you were saying, um, but kind of a one of convenience. Getting into uh, kind of where we left off, getting back into the conversation. Another part of your chapter in saying no to God, the part of the book that's uh, talking about saying no to homophobia, you talk about biblical prejudices. And one of them, Has to do with like the typical story of David and Jonathan. And this idea that every time the, you know, suggestion is brought up is that maybe David was bisexual, you know, we recoil at the idea of them being lovers. Like, what do you have to say to those types of responses to that particular issue?
2: Well, the problem with the David Jonathan issue is kind of a problem you find in regards to like, All issues of the Bible when it comes to this topic, and that is that although many would lead you to think that the issue is a biblical centric topic that this is really a debate about what the Bible says, once you have biblical scholars actually become involved in the debate and the debate goes from lay people to actual scholarship. The problem is the waters get really murky because when you start talking about what the Bible says, it's not a clear cut thing. And so then what happens is people start shifting to more their like cultural sensibilities and their intuitions. And they very quickly try to escape from whatever the Bible's own literal interpretation might lead them to. So, for example, with David and Jonathan, I would say that a lot of biblical scholars would argue it's a 50-50 issue. In the sense that there's really no way to definitively state that the authors of the Bible understood David and Jonathan to have a sexual relationship, but it is also not possible to rule out that the Bible authors meant that. Because when you're reading the Hebrew, the descriptions and language used for David and Jonathan's relationship is almost exclusively only ever used in a sexual connotation for men and women in the Bible who are in a marital relationship or that kind of relationship. So while someone can choose to say, and it's possible that you're interpreting this in the light of sort of Middle Eastern practices today where men kiss each other and there's this deep brotherly bond between each other that's supposed to be beyond women because women are supposedly not as good a bond as (laughs) as other men. you You can read into that whatever extra variables culturally you want to. But the point is, yeah, it might be related to that, possibly. Jonathan is just so much more amazing than women are in that sense. But it also might be because of the very explicit language that's used that there is something romantically involved here. And and that's not, uh, if someone's listening to that and going, oh, that sounds like that's the imagination of human beings who are just trying to make the Bible fit into their culture. No, I mean, like there really are examples of this. First of all, uh, David and Jonathan kissing often. Second of all, the fact that uh, uh, Saul accuses uh, that, you know, you've uncovered your mother's nakedness, which does carry very large sexual connotations. There's the nakedness between David and Jonathan and d Robin. There's a bunch of things that go well beyond anything we know of in terms of just Middle Eastern uh, male relationship bonding. So it's not impossible, but it's also it can't be ruled out that it's the other so i don't have an opinion on this issue and i don't think you can honestly give one and say yes they are or no they aren't so when you know as much as i appreciate people are like yes david and jonathan yeah it's like okay but you're making an interpretive decision if you do that it's it's more neutral if we're just saying as a as like a court case i can't rule either way it's 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 up in the air but my issue in that chapter is less to do with the merit of it, because, you know, it it is a merited idea, it just can't be proven. And the other one could be true. But the real problem is how people react to the suggestion. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get into the homophobia, which is it's not a biblical issue in the sense of, well, maybe David and Jonathan did have that. And maybe that is an issue, right? Okay, David also killed people and David did a thousand other things in life. And any number <laughs> of those things can, if you find uh, if you find a uh, bisexual orientation or relationship to be problematic, there's plenty more things on the list that you could cite that are definitively problematic about David. And yet somehow the mere suggestion that the very complicated individual of David uh, could potentially have had a different sexual orientation is itself enough to trigger so many people to the point that they stop listening to the biblical evidence or what's there. And that's not normal because that would be like someone getting triggered because you said David intentionally killed Uriah. And they're like, no. <laughs> that's, I'm not listening to this. David would never do that. It was obviously just accidental. He didn't know that Sheba was even married. It was a shock to him later. You know, like that would be very strange. Why are you getting so triggered about this? There's something under the surface that's driving this, not the biblical text, and certainly not the biblical morality that you're proclaiming. So, one of the problems that I point out in the book is just if you're more triggered by the suggestion. Even the idea that one of these heroes of faith actually has something deeply human, even problematic for some people, and that's the overriding concern and not anything else about their life, and it would change how you perceive them, then yes, that would be the classic definition of homophobia.
0: Right, right. And it's so interesting because, you know, I think the Christian community in general, has accepted the fact that, okay, David, you know, was a rapist and that he used his power in order to coax a woman who had not power into a sexual relationship. He murdered one of his best friends. And like, we, we are willing to accept these parts about who he is and still say, but he was a man after God's own heart. And I think there was a model of repentance in David, right? Like we see him go through, a you know, the second half of his life was very grueling. So that's not to take away from that. But the, like you're saying, the mere suggestion that, you know, when he says in 2 Samuel 1, 26, for anybody curious, it's, he's talking about Jonathan and he's giving this ode and he says, your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women, right? And he's giving this kind of, um, you know, acclamation. The mere suggestion that he might have had affection, uh, in a bisexual way, for other men is like that's the disqualifier. Like that—that's the part that I that we cannot conceive of. I think you're right. It does show an incredible amount of homophobia on our part.
2: And, and the other thing too is these issues aren't so simple. So, like, imagine. That you do accept that David was bisexual and that you have this relationship, right? In the LGBTQ community, for reading scripture, that might come off as, oh, these are great icons. Now, let me problematize this a bit. Who was the actual ruler when David and Jonathan's relationship supposedly began? Who had the power advantage? Saul. Well, Saul, but by virtue of Saul. Oh, the prince. Jonathan Jonathan right right right, right. David is brought into Jonathan's home he takes the 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 lower position and Jonathan is the individual who technically has a power dynamic David doesn't really have a choice right Mm -hmm. like it's not how is he supposed to say no Right? In the same way that David takes Bathsheba, Jonathan could be counter-read as using his power to take in David. We're not used to thinking of that, but if you go down that road, right. it's not like immediately this is a romance story. The same power dynamics could be at play in the beginning, at least, in regards to how that turns out, which is to just say that you're never gonna have the Bible give you a picture-perfect story that fits all your moral uh, standards and all that you want. There's always going to be a problem, whether it's, does does Ruth actually marry Boaz because there's a relationship there, or is it a mutual economic benefit because she's trying to ensure that Naomi's okay? Uh, uh, You know, like, these issues are never so simple as we want to romanticize them given our modern convictions. And so Mm. the problem becomes often that what really should matter are these deeper moral issues, right? We should be more concerned with the thought of how have we ignored uh, power dynamics? How have we ignored uh, the way in which people exercise authority over each other and the way in which people discriminate? But instead, we're usually having conversations that dwell so shallow on just "ew," "no," my image my fantasy it's gone don't do that oh you're terrible you're it's like excuse me uh, we have to have deeper issues it's like Paul talking about I want to give you meat but I have to keep giving you baby food right? right we need to be having deeper conversations like when Jesus is trying to tell people hey guess what you murdering someone in your own mind yeah, that's pretty bad. Like just cuz you didn't actually murder them doesn't mean that that like that's the way you should have your brain set. Like you can right. imagine that. Oh, I you just keep lusting over that married woman and imagining you're going to go ahead and and have sex with her. But oh, I haven't done it, so I'm okay. It's like, well, okay, sure, but I mean, that doesn't mean you're okay. There's a problem right. here, right? And you're just ignoring that in order to feel good at a certain level, I think oftentimes we're reading the Bible that shallow. We're not taking seriously the humanity that goes not only into the characters, but into the people writing those characters. Again, notice how in David's story, despite the fact that Jonathan's the prince and David's technically, you could say, in a surrogate role you know, going in, yet the writers want to make David their future king look very much like he's always macho, always in control, was always scheming. But how do we know that David was always scheming? And it's not the case that David learned how to scheme because of being in the house of Saul. If you're surrounded within that context and culture, and that's what you have to do in order to survive, are a lot of David's negative uh, traits actually a product of uh, living through the experiences he did with Saul who experienced and showed all those traits to him. Again, survival is something that makes David a tragic character. It's not like, you have to demonize him either for all his sins. You can also look at him through the lens of being a victim of the circumstances he was under and see God's power in bringing him through that. But again, as long as we keep on this stupid argument about a shallow reading of the Bible and David's either good or bad, he's either straight or bi, and I don't wanna wanna think about all these complicated issues, give me a simple moral like a, a fairy tale. Well, then yeah, we're never gonna have the deep conversations about how the Holy Spirit's working in our own world because we're not willing to think about how complicated it was back then.
0: This is so good. Okay, Matthew, you brought the tea this morning. I am sipping it up right now <laughs> because it's so true. But like you said, it it's so complicated because you're you're saying he is uh, like a victim and also a survivor of a lot of traumatic events that has shaped him profoundly and how he showed up as a king and as you know, as he progressed in his maturity and his relationship with God, that he is a survivor and was affected profoundly by all of these events. So taking a quick break here to get your reaction. I personally love the way that he broke down so many different aspects of the complicated nature of David's relationship with the household of Saul. And even brought in some of the humanity of the writer's wanting to portray a hyper-masculine figure, maybe even in the retelling of the events, but that might not be true to the actual event. I mean, there are so many juicy things in that picture, but I'm curious to get your reaction. (laughs) Well, I agree. I think what he does
1: so brilliantly is say humanity is complicated, and my own association to that is maturity is complicated right maturity is to understand that there's a desire for oversimplification for the black and white but that we outgrow that as we realize that human beings in reality is much more complex and being able to hold the both and is much more powerful
0: than having to reduce it to a black and white issue an either or and either or mm-hmm. Um, did you feel any type of, like, when he was describing this kind of major issues or the underlying issues, like, what was your emotional reaction? Is there anything that took place within you as you were listening? I don't mean to play chaplain. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just asking you as a person.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I did have an emotional reaction. He's talking to the reader of the text and mm-hmm. saying, you know, you're you're going through some stage of grief every time something is told to you about a character that you don't like or the possibility, the idea that this character might not be all that you hope and envision him to be, that you would have this kind of visceral and aggressive reaction to it mm. is... Is you know, my chaplain brain is going, yes, yes, because that's what grief looks like. Mm. When we don't want something to happen. We we do bargain and we try to look for another reason or another explanation, or we go straight into denial mode, right? right. Um, or we get angry, we get very, very upset. And, and these are normal stages too, right? Something's unfamiliar, something is not what you want. But I think realizing that. Wow, I am having these reactions, and you know he does a very good job of comparing it to other awful things that David has done.
0: Mm.
1: Why, why does this bother me to an extent that murder doesn't bother me? Right. Like why why can I sympathize with a murderer with a more straight th-
0: murderer than a bisexual <laughs> murderer?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and. And that is really interesting, and I wonder if people were more aware of their emotional reactions, because I think there's also a lot of arrogance when you think you have capital T truth, and you're in the right, and you understand things in black and white. There's complexity in human nature, right? and that we're not simply good
0: or simply bad. I think you've you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about grief and people's reaction to kind of losing the image of a beloved character or especially because david is such a hyper masculine character in so many ways he defeated the giant and he's a warrior and he killed tens of thousands and there's this you know with a sling
1: yeah (laughs) i mean that's the i i just don't picture him that's funny because i don't have an image of david that's um very hyper masculine right, right
0: he does it with the sling and stone and like, <laughs> but the, you know and, and he's fleeing most of his life and yes. living in caves and like there but, are feminine qualities I mean yeah.
1: I don't even want to say that because I, I have problems with the word feminine and masculine right? Right,
0: right but he's you know when we talk about strength and kind of the more valorized forms of strength yeah I think physical, Uh, brutality and animalistic strength are one of the ones that, you know, are mostly associated with a masculine characteristic. And I think he kind of embodies this for men. And so to be like, but he might've been bisexual is like, it's a shattering image for somebody that you would wish to be like the model of masculinity to find out like what David at the end of his life said, you know, I'd rather just be remembered as a poet. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show, like, that's not the biggest thing that he prized about himself Yeah, was some warrior mode. So it's interesting. Yeah.
1: A lover, a poet, a harpist. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Singer, songwriter. (laughs) Uh,
0: He lived a very complex life. I
1: just, uh, you know, um, recently I heard about kind of this theory that the Mona Lisa is not actually... A woman. A woman. Right. There is the possibility it was Monsalaius, which would be a play. Uh, uh, what? S- uh, uh, Salai. Salai. Salai, yeah. Which
0: means a uh, little devil. And then Monsalai is like the re... Is like means like my little devil. Yeah. And then Mona Lisa is just kind of the rearranging of those letters. Uh, those letters. Anyways. Um, and that it was hit, Leonardo da Vinci's possibly gay lover. Yes. Yeah. Just to say that...
1: There's a strong reaction to even that suggestion. Right. And and we know that it's very plausible because of his sexuality. Mm-hmm. And it's still
0: difficult. It's still that this great piece of art is actually a man, a male lover. of Yeah. Leonardo. So I think it's, you're right. It's us having to be willing to accept people and not what they might represent for us. I think what's what's surprising to me is like that some people are just 100% straight. Like if there's a spectrum, like they are on the, the straightest part of that spectrum. And I think it just goes to show how important it is to not take your own life and experience as an analogy for what other people are going through. And I think sometimes it's just hard to step outside of yourself and say, well, I didn't have that experience. Well, you know, I think it's easy to want to make images after ourselves Mm -hmm. and to make David in our image or to make whoever, you know, Leonardo da Vinci in our image. But, you know, to know that that might not be the experience and people have different experience in how we experience the world, that's also part of the maturity process. Yes, I agree. I just want to read this quote that you put in that chapter. I think it totally summarizes kind of the overarching point here, which is, quote, Any discomfort a Christian feels about imagining a biblical character as non-heterosexual says more about the sexism and discriminatory attitudes we carry within ourselves than it does about God or one's view of morality. I think that was a really great uh, summary of that entire point. And you talk about another character where we look at biblical prejudices and we see these prejudices taking place, and that's Jonah and kind of the way that he justifies his hatred of the Assyrians. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, no, Jonah is an interesting case study because he is an individual who God, I mean, like most people, when they remember Jonah, they remember Jonah ran away from uh, the mission he was given to go preach doom to Nineveh and then he preaches doom to Nineveh and they repent and he's upset but the interesting thing is it actually tells you in the story that Jonah admits he knew that when God told him to go preach doom to Nineveh that it was for the purpose of God forgiving them and that his real reason to run away was because he didn't want them to end up getting forgiven. So sometimes people don't read very carefully and they think, oh, he was just running away because he was afraid. No, he was afraid that God's mercy would come out in the end. That's what his real concern was. And it happened. And the thing is, what that reveals here is that if Jonah had been asked, why do you hate the Assyrians? He'd quote all these historical reasons for their their uh their attacks on Israel, all their persecution. He'd quote plenty of religious reasons. They don't worship Yahweh. They don't understand his ways. They defame them. They're idolaters. And yet the moment that they actually repent, the moment that you have the largest repentance ever in the Bible, Jonah could care less about their spiritual state, their repentance, or any of these other things. And what that reveals is when God says, shouldn't I care about them and even their animals? what God is really revealing to Jonah and readers who are like Jonah is that you really use a lot of this uh, religious language to hide the fact that you just hate these people personally. Mm -hmm. And you're using God as your scapegoat as a rationale for why I can, as a prophet, denounce these people. But actually you've allowed that to become, again, just a covering for your deeper darker sin of what you really are fostering inside yourself regardless of what happens to them and that's almost a mirror of jesus's good samaritan parable Because again, the issue of the Samaritans is very similar to the issue of prejudice with the Assyrians in that again, lots of people would have said, well, they're not really Jews or they're violating the Torah as we understand it. They're worshiping at a different place than we should be doing. They have different customs. And so you could have non-Samaritan Jews being like, I don't like these Samaritan Jews. They're terrible, they're bad, they're evil. And at the same time, here's Jesus telling a story about a good Samaritan Jew, right? That's not going to go down good, just like it didn't go down good with Jonah. Even though we don't have a record in Luke's gospel of how the crowd reacted to such a parable, we do know from Luke's gospel that Jesus, when he simply recited the story of um, Elijah helping uh, foreigners and that God gave miracles during a time of crisis only to the foreigners, he just was quoting the Bible. They went to throw him off a cliff. Right? So, imagine not quoting the Bible and telling an absurd hypothetical story about good Samaritans. You, at some point, you're going to have to take a step back and think, yeah, you know, they probably couldn't accept it, right? They're going to be upset, just like people's reactions to the idea that Jonathan or David aren't heterosexual. They shut down, they go, wait, no, I'm not even going to go into this. How could you even suggest that, right? They should be, as Jesus said, celebrating that even one sinner has repented and turned good, right? Working with their own prejudices, they should be like, yes, there is a good Samaritan. Oh, how I wish there was a good Samaritan. No, they're angry at the mere prospect that there could be a good Samaritan. And so this is really getting to the core of how our religious language too often will be utilized to prevent us from looking at our own dark hearts.
0: I like this because... I think one thing we don't talk about enough, you know, is the lens that we're using when we're coming to scripture, right? And homophobia is a lens, right? And I think even as a woman, you know, I am not exempt from misogyny, internalized misogyny. These are viewpoints that I have to work out (laughs) and understand and begin to correct myself on, even going through the experience of being a woman because we get education from so many different parts of our culture, uh, whether it's the Bible or whether it's our society or whether it's the things that we see, our family systems, like we get these images of what a woman is. And so we have to do kind of the actual effort and the work of self-correction. And the same thing has to be done with homophobia. Like we think that even queer people, even members of the LGBTQ community actually do a work of like dealing with internalized homophobia. And I hear this all the time. And so if, so if we are having to do that work of uh, rooting out homophobia, why wouldn't anybody else? Right. So I think you make a really great point.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I think that part of the problem is uh, homophobia is kind of like, kind of like how racism is in the sense that if somebody is told, you know, well, that's homophobia and, and it's sinful it's viewed as like a character assassination, like how terrible you are, as opposed to like a cultural conditioning, something that you've picked up without meaning to that affects how you view things. You know, it's it, it's like somebody, if somebody wants to genuinely say, I have a divine command view of the Bible, my understanding of the Bible is that it condemns uh, uh, homosexual relationships. And so this is my position that I currently have based off of the Bible, and, you know, regardless of my own personal convictions, I feel that I'm drawn and principled to have to try to uphold this and understand this. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I suppose you can have like a, a, a genuine debate about both the role of the Bible in regards to your experience, inspiration, and those texts. But too often none of the Bible actually matters to this debate. I remember one time I was really shocked. I was speaking to uh, about this chapter to a, a large group of liberal Adventists. And it, I gave like a large presentation on all the biblical discussions, the debates involved in. I was expecting as good Adventists, we were gonna have a big biblical discussion. Instead, we spend about an hour plus having individuals defend that it is not sinful to have homophobia like these were lgbtq supporting adventists who were arguing <laughs> that the feeling of homophobia the the sense of that's disgusting no i don't like that you know that 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 visceral reaction was natural in fact uh, it was it was compared by some to the sense you have when you look at poop that it's like natural for you to have this visceral, oh, you know, like that's just and Uh I was like, well, if that was the case, then why is it the generation Z that seems to lack any of these feelings for the most part? Uh, You know, if it was natural, why don't, oh, I don't believe that. They definitely must have it, they're suppressing it. And it's like, look, I understand you're having difficulties with your experience in life and seeing people who don't have it, but that's precisely what cultural conditioning is. Now, again, that's pretty bad that, in fact, through the entire Q&A, not one question dealt on any of the biblical evidence. Wow. And I made a comment about it at the end. I was like, really? Like, I think this says a lot surprising about this issue. Adventists, who are supposed to be all about the Bible and discussing it, are spending all their time trying to justify why some feeling they have doesn't incriminate them as having a defect that they need to perhaps pray about. And that kind of gets to the heart of why LGBTQ issues aren't progressing really in the Adventist church and why the only reason they ever seem to is due to cultural pressures, because it's not really being addressed as a biblical issue or even an issue that's drawing on the bible's resources a lot of people are just addressing it in terms of their own sensibilities and utilizing the bible as you know whatever a good thumping book it can be used for to defend uh, or to attack and that's just not the way the scripture should be utilized again it's like we we cherish Ellen White so much in terms of her theological value for for being a presence or guidance in terms of the church's direction the fact that she doesn't talk about homosexuality at all, despite its prevalence, provident, uh prevalent nature, even in her own day, she avoids discussing that issue. Uh, suddenly that doesn't mean anything. Suddenly, her silence on this issue seems to have no relevance for the end times, despite the fact that so many have said that she's supposed to be setting up and preparing us for what really matters at the end times. Um, and so okay. you can really start to see hypocrisy. Uh, And I don't necessarily think that it's intentional for a lot of these people. I think they genuinely are blind to what they're doing, but the problem is there's also not a lot of voices, especially in Adventism, that are holding them to account to say, hey, pay attention to these issues. Like seriously, take a look at them uh, and notice what role you're playing in adding to these things.
0: This is so good. And I think this gets us to our next question, because like you're saying, this silence, especially in Adventist prophetic writings, um, is kind of a big deal. But oftentimes, um, when we talk about the end times, and there are quotes that say in the end, it'll be like the days of Sodom or the days of Lot. And people automatically refer that to, well, that must be referring to the homosexuality uh, that was referred to in Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's my next question. You know, is Sodom and Gomorrah, and I've tackled this in other places, but is it about homosexuality?
2: The the short answer is no. And I really don't understand how certain conservative-leaning biblical scholars at Andrews can try to honestly make the case that it is. Mm-hmm. Like I I and I mean that like in that chapter, there was a chapter, and I think the the, the book that Andrews put out on homosexuality that dealt with that at one point. It's been a while since I went back to read it. Um, but you know this is a common refrain in evangelicalism and it's just not very well biblically supported because now sexuality does play a role in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative for sure. I mean, it's the whole crowd of people comes out of men who want to go ahead and, um, and basically know or rape uh, the strangers who come. But the problem is, is that that's about as shallow a reading as they can get. Uh, If you go to look at any of the prophets who talk about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, they never reference sexuality. It's never Mm -hmm. mentioned. So the closest that they can get, they talk about inhospitality, and they talk about not being kind to strangers. Now, I understand, I do get it, why conservative scholars will look at that, or just in general, conservative individuals, and they'll be like, really? You expect me to, knowing what happened in that story, we're supposed to just take inhospitality as the main message? Like, I get it. Like, with all the elements of rape and other things going on, it seems strange that inhospitality is what's focused on. So the fact that, for example, um, Ezekiel will mention that there were abominations, they'll then say, okay, that must be the reference vaguely to what was happening sexually. But again, they have to interpret that. And that wasn't what was considered the main issue that had to be referenced. So it still doesn't solve that issue. In the letter of Jude, there's the only reference to sexuality that's mentioned. And the problem there is people are trying to comment on that passage without having any real understanding of Second Temple Judaism. my, My master's degree specialized in Second Temple Judaism. I've continued to take classes uh, academically on the Book of Enoch, uh, let me tell you definitively when you look at Jude and Jude actually quotes from the Book of Enoch, I think it's verse 14 he goes ahead and is drawing on this work one of the arguments he makes is well look at the angels, they didn't keep their place in heaven, they transgressed the borders, etc And then it goes on to say and the people in Sodom and Gomorrah they too, did such terrible things. They too were doing these uh, awful things, uh, uh, doing uh, uh, strange immor- sexual immorality. Well, here's the key. What happens in the biblical, in the book of Enoch's mythology is that it interprets Genesis 6 as the sons of God coming to rape humanity, the daughters of man. Now, regardless of how today we find that story as completely ridiculous, many, majority, I think, Um, It was the mainstream view. Um, Probably Jesus grew up being taught that. And as far as we know, almost all Jews believed it, except maybe the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in angels. Um, So, you know, like, or they didn't, Really have strong convictions on some of these issues. So, the point is, for the most part, we know that early Christians and the Jews before them were pretty much in agreement that, yeah, angels had sex with women in Genesis 6. And that was a thing. Now, eventually, that was given up by Augustine's period because Augustine made a very good argument that this was nuts. And why are we believing it? And people said, oh, yeah. And that's about the time that the book of Enoch stopped being very important in the rest of the church because people were kind of hard to value a book that you don't want, you no longer share the same interpretation of Genesis 6 with, right? So it opens up with this whole story. So once you stop believing in that story, the rest of the book kind of becomes meaningless because you can't get past the first you know, 14 chapters of Enoch. So in that sense, um, when you go back to look at Jude, what Jude's making an argument for Sodom and Gomorrah is not about that the strange flesh that the Sodomites wanted was men. The actual argument here is that the strange flesh they wanted were angels. So in other words, what Jude's arguing here Is that if back in Genesis 6, as he understood it through Enoch, if back in Genesis 6, the angels had transgressed God's rule and sought to um, harm humans, the human world, the divine turned its back on its responsibilities and harmed humanity and God judged the angels for it. How horrible that Sodom was so evil that humans transgressed the divine and sought to rape them. Mm. So like, it's so much worse. First was people with more power turning against, uh, against weak, helpless humanity. Now humanity transgressing itself against the, the divine uh, messengers. So uh, the idea in Jude is really focused on this particular understanding of Genesis 6. And his main moral concern is how humans would eventually turn against God. It's not related to anything to do with like uh, male homosexuality. So Jude, as the only sexually explicit reference, has nothing to do with that. It's related to Enoch. And we know because he's drawing on Enoch. Okay, so once you get rid of that, now you're like, okay, well, what else could we look at to understand the Sodom and Gomorrah story? Well, you can look at Judges 19 to 20. And in that story, you have almost line by line identical to the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Like almost every element is the same. You have a Levite, he has his concubine. They come to an Israelite city. Okay. They come to an Israelite uh, tribes town in the tribe of Benjamin. And they come there to stay. They skipped a non Israelite territory because they didn't want to stay where there weren't Israelites because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? What actually is going to happen to them in the Benjaminite territory. So they get over there. And what ends up happening is a huge crowd of men of the town come and they demand give us the stranger who's come now the stranger in this case isn't an angel it is another israelite but he's from another tribe the tribe of levi and he's come into their territory to stay so they all come out and say bring him to us we want to know him so the whole story is repeating and what the guy does the Levite, is he shoves out his concubine to them he doesn't offer he just shoves her out the door and, and slams it shut and um they go ahead and gang rape her all night long, and then she's murdered. He, he the Levite, in the morning comes outside to look, and she's crawled her way to the door. And he starts kicking her to get up, and she doesn't move. He knows she's dead, so he cuts her into the number of pieces of the tribes of Israel, sends each of those pieces off with a message to each of the tribe leaders, and says, "We need a civil war with Benjamin because of what they've done." And so then there's a bloody civil war and the tribe of Benjamin is practically murdered to death and non-existent. And it's a terrible, terrible, terrible crisis. Now, what's fascinating is when he sends the message in 20 verse 5, he says, they came out so as to kill me. He gives the reason for why they wanted to have sex with him. It is not because they have lust. It is not because they're filled with all kinds of vices or whatever. They come out because they want to murder. And their way of murdering is to do so through sexual violation. So why is it that they do this? Because they wish to express their, their um, xenophobia that they do not uh, see the Levite as a family member of theirs, that they want him to know they view him like a stranger and that they want to emasculate him, make him like a woman, and in killing him as a woman to give a message to anyone else about how that town feels about strangers coming to their land. Now, that is, when you then look at the fact that this is, these people coming out in the tribe of Benjamin are Yahweh worshiping, Yahweh observant, Israelites under the covenant who thought that it made sense for them in worshiping Yahweh to do this to a stranger, even of the tribe of Levi. Again, this is really important. This is, you can't say, like, imagine the the, the absurdity. Well, the entire Israelite town was gay.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Just imagine like the absurdity of this argument. If you apply Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodomites were so terrible that they they just, it was a whole town of gay people. Um, Right. And so there was a whole town of Israelite observant, Yahweh worshiping gay people in the tribe of Benjamin. Eh, It seems to be stretching it a bit much. Um, At some point you have to say, well, wait a minute. I see Israelites doing this. I see foreign Sodomites doing this. And what's the key issue He's a foreigner And they seek to kill, which means that if it was true for the Israelites, it's probably true as well for the sodomites, that that's their goal. And remember, uh, what was Lot so concerned with, don't sleep out here, outside, come on inside and, you know, don't let them see you, you know, don't show that you're a stranger because strangers are supposed to stay at the gate because they'll be protected over there. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. When you look at the prophets, they keep mentioning hospitality, which relates to strangers or foreigners. So at some point you can take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. Is the issue, if it's if it's being shown to happen to foreigners as well as Israelite, is the issue here actually a cultural attack that's happening here? Is this some kind of uh, cultural way of hurting other individuals? And in fact, funny enough, it still happens today. In Syria, you can look online and find reports of Muslim men raping uh, uh, other refugees in Syria in order to kill them or to demonstrate to them their power. These are orthodox, uh, 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 gay-hating Muslim men who as groups feel that they can dominate uh, by demonstrating to other men who are refugees, we are in control. And they don't view that as uh, homosexuality. These groups, they don't see themselves in that way, but they're trying to do the same thing that's being described here in the Bible. So the problem then is that when you can see that, one, you recognize the issue here has nothing to do with sexual orientation. This is not have to do with male homosexuality. Uh, it's, in, it's utilizing sexuality as a way to dominate. Now, mm-hmm. why does that become important both for taking away Uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story as like a hammer people use against gay people. But it's also important because of when you think about the fact that when you go to Leviticus 1822, and it talks about a man shall not bed another man, right? One plays the control. Another is the submissive. Now, this won't be the case in 20 verse 13, but in 1822, the language here is essentially one man acting on another. Now, let's just think about this. This is my own opinion. At this point, I'm I'm going beyond uh, mainstream scholarship. I'm giving my own individual biblical scholarly opinion. If I have to sit there and think to myself that some kind of activity like this was so widespread culturally that we still have it today, that it caused a civil war in Israel, wouldn't you expect that there would be laws about it? Wouldn't you expect that among all the laws in Leviticus, there'd be some rule that would be like, don't ever do this kind of activity, right? It's so bad, it tore the country apart, right? Don't do that stuff. We don't need civil wars. Um, Okay, but under the usual conservative understanding of the verses in Leviticus, then there is no such law that exists anywhere against this activity. Like it just skipped God's mind. There's no rule here to warn. Don't be like the sodomites where they try to rape strangers. Don't be like uh, the uh, Benjaminites who went ahead and did it too. There's nothing. Now let's reverse this. If we don't assume that 1822 in Leviticus is about homosexuality and we take it literally as one man acting upon another potentially suggestive of rape, Boy, wouldn't it make sense that that rule was related to the phenomenon of Sodom and the Benjaminites? Now there's an actual rule about men who go out to have sex with another man to rape them. Huh, it would make sense. It seems a little more probable to assume that than to assume that it just happens that God never gave a rule about the issue.
0: Amago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious conversations, I am so grateful for all of you who have reached out and have been sharing your personal stories, tragedies, and triumphs within the queer community of faith. I just want to encourage you all this week to stand strong. God has got you. If you are enjoying this content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to reach me, you can write me at Kendra Arsenault with the next on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsors today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International, and be sure to sign up for their newsletters, where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly, and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.